Currency Press is Australia's foremost publisher of the performing arts. We've been sharing Australian stories since 1971, and we've always believed in theatre that raises more questions than answers, which is why we're sitting down with some of the country's most respected playwrights and talking to them about their work. Each month, we look at one play over 30 minutes with insights straight from the source. Hello, I'm Toby Leon, and this is Not In Print. Angela Betsian is a multi-award-winning writer and a founding member of independent theatre company Real TV. Her work has toured widely across Australia and internationally. She's currently the Patrick White Fellow at Sydney Theatre Company and developing new plays for them as well as Melbourne Theatre Company and Belvoir. Angela's play, Children of the Black Skirt, toured Australian schools for three years and won the 2005 Drama Victoria Award for Best Performance by a Theatre Company for Secondary Schools. Another work, Hoods, won the Augie Award for Theatre for Young Audiences in 2007 and the Richard Werrett Award for Theatre for Young Audiences in the same year. And then there's the play that we're here to talk about today, War Crimes. It won the 2012 Kit Denton Fellowship and the Queensland Literary Award for Playwriting. It was also nominated for a New South Wales Premier's Literary Award in 2012. Set in a regional coastal town, War Crimes tells a powerful story of five disenfranchised young women who are fighting for respect, railing against authority, and struggling to form an identity in a small town with limited opportunities. The relocation of an Iraqi refugee family to the town provokes a climate of hostility and tension that threatens to violently explode. War Crimes continues Real TV's trademark technique of using real events as pretexts for the creation of relevant and provocative contemporary Australian drama. Angela, welcome to Not In Print. Thank you. Let's talk about Real TV. How would you describe Real TV to someone that knew nothing about it? Mm. Real TV is an independent uh, creative team, probably more than a company, and we formed in the year 2000, so 15 years ago. And we're made up of myself, the playwright, um, Letitia Caceres, the director and composer Pete Goodwin. And we formed our company because we really believed in creating theatre that was politically engaged and, and really exciting. And uh, that's what we've been doing for the last, over, over the last decade or so. And I wanted to read a quote that outlines the mission of Real TV. You once said that the mission of Real TV is to tell the stories of the underclass, stories which appear in a few second slots on the six o'clock news. Now, besides the fact that these stories aren't told often enough, what draws you to them? I've had such a history of writing plays based on real events and I think what draws me to these stories is their power. I think that in the in the theatre they have real currency. If an audience recognises a story as being real in some way, there's a kind of an electricity that develops uh, and I've kind of witnessed that and I think that recognition is really powerful. There's a you know a huge tradition of creating theatre, which is um, of, it's often referred to as living newspaper. So it was practiced in the late 1800s in Russia by troops of actors who would communicate the news to uh, an illiterate population. Uh, so it was fairly a pragmatic tool in that context, but it was later practiced um, by the Federal Theatre Project during the Great Depression in America. 
and plays were created like newspaper production houses and there, there were these mammoth productions that would would communicate the the day's events uh, to, to the public. And looking now um, at the state of 21st century uh, political theatre, Letitia Caceres actually said that the job of the political theatre maker now is to re-engage the audience's imagination in order to question and think about what kind of future that they want to live in. How have you both tried to do that with your work? I think the theatre that we create is very much about uh, encouraging audiences to ask questions and to be critical citizens, I suppose. I think often when people think about political theatre, they often think about uh, a didactic theatre and they they worry that they'll be um, belted over the head with an idea or a political agenda, an ideology, and usually that's the playwright's ideology. And I think as Real TV, what we've attempted to do is create a theatre that asks questions about how how our world might be different. And that's, I think, all you can do as a political theatre maker. Um, and really, theatre is a forum for debate uh, and, and characters are the embodiment of that debate. So do you react to things as they happened or, or do you kind of pick something that you actually want to focus on and kind of unpack it? How, how do you make decisions about what you produce? It varies from project to project. Sometimes I'm, att- I'm really attracted by the potency of a particular news story, but I'm not interested in uh, in taking the real facts of that story and writing a verbatim piece or a, a, a piece based on research, on real research. I always fictionalise the drama uh, to distance it as much as possible from that real event. So reality is just a springboard? That's right, yes. And you've also said that your own personal approach to creating political drama is eclectic, irreverent, and that you're prepared to beg, borrow, and steal from the canon of political theatre and popular media to create a drama that works, a drama that's both entertaining and provocative. How do you strike the right balance between being entertaining and provocative? It's difficult. It's a very difficult, fine line, I think. I mean, my goal is always to create a theatre that's that's not boring. And I think when you do write plays for young audiences, you're highly conscious of being boring. Many of our plays have toured into schools, into classrooms and gymnasiums, and it's often very difficult to hold the attention of that audience on a Friday afternoon. And so I'm highly conscious of cutting out those boring bits. But the the fine line is, you know, you want to create something that's very powerful and provocative, that makes people uncomfortable, that forces them to the edge of their seats. And, you know, I often wonder, I think some theatre makers, particularly young ones, perhaps pride themselves on audience walkouts. So, you know, if people walk out of their show, they feel that's a, a sort of a sign of success, that they're really cutting edge and they're you know, breaking boundaries. And I, you know, I can recognise that that tendency in my, my earlier years. And I think I've learnt from that. I want to create work that's actually full of hope. I think that's a true political theatre where we see the possibilities of our future. Let's talk about war crimes. In 2007, five girls vandalised a war memorial in Bathurst with anti-war slogans. It was on the eve of Anzac Day. 
and later when they were discovered by police still covered in white paint and hiding in nearby bushland, a 17-year-old girl was arrested and charged. The others were dealt with under the Young Offenders Act. And then this incident and others like it attracted a great deal of attention. Obviously on on Talkback Radio, it, it also provoked a proposal for an increase of penalties, which were never actually increased, but it inflamed debate over the whole Anzac legend and sparked a real a call, I guess, for a resurgence of pride in this national story. But you've been quoted as saying that while the real event was the inspiration for war crimes, I didn't seek to research the particular case. Rather, I was interested in creating a completely fictional narrative. None of the characters in the play are based on real people. So tell me, how did you build a fictional story within this real-life framework? Mm, Good question. It's a common feature of my writing to take real events and to fictionalise them. So I very deliberately avoid researching the particular event and uh, the particular people who were involved in that event. And I think that's for a, for a number of reasons, mostly because I don't want to be beholden to the truth of that story and I want to be able to take that, that story where I need to take it and to bend events and to, uh, to create fiction around it. So when I heard about this uh, particular story of these girls, I was fascinated by, by the act and I was also fascinated by the reaction to this act. And that was, you know, was just as, as important to uh, my interest in, in, in the event. When I thought of these girls, I, I thought of Che Guevara's uh, famous quote, if you tremble with indignation at every injustice, then you're a comrade of mine. And I, I imagine these girls living in this country town in Bathurst, trembling with indignation about the injustices of the world that they saw around them about war and potentially Australia's engagement in war overseas in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I thought, this is a really interesting story. And, you know, it was interesting when I first started to write, to sketch some ideas around the story, I thought, I'm going to write a play about five young activists who want to change the world. And then I realised that Although that's a good story, it's not a very interesting story. And so that's where I think where the fiction comes in, where fiction is is often much more full of conflict, I guess, and much more exciting than than truth in some regards. Uh, So that's how I sort of began the process of telling that story. One of the, the big attractions to the story was, I guess, the boldness of these girls' actions and how the response was incredibly, incredibly reactionary. And I think that while the girls had very good intentions, that potentially those actions were, were possibly misguided. So I wanted to explore that kind of nebulous area to look at all of the emotions um, around that, I guess. There were other real-world events that actually um, influenced the the writing process and the narrative as well, though, weren't there? It wasn't just that one story. No, there was another story that happened almost at the same time, uh, and it was a story story that happened in Melbourne, and uh, a woman, an Iraqi woman, uh, who was living in Australia with her family, her daughter went missing over the weekend. And she looked everywhere, searched everywhere, and couldn't find her. So on Monday morning, this woman turned up at her daughter's high school, demanding to know where her daughter was. And it turned out that 
her daughter had actually been placed in uh, a residential care facility, but the mother hadn't been informed of this. And so the mother was incredibly distressed and had taken a, a, a can of petrol and a lighter to school. And she doused herself in petrol and threatened to light herself if the school didn't tell her where her daughter was. Fortunately, the situation was de-escalated and the woman was later hospitalised and, and charged with reckless behaviour uh, endangering life. But what came out in the court case was that uh, this woman was suffering from severe post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, her family had been tortured and killed under the Saddam Hussein regime before she came out to Australia with her family. And she had fled uh, Iraq through the mountains into Pakistan. So that story was a real reminder that we live next door to people who have encountered terrible trauma as a result of war. And so I thought this is interesting narrative. And I, I chose to fictionalise that story and juxtapose it with with the story of these, these five girls who vandalised a war memorial on the eve of Anzac Day. And really, I wanted to, to write something that explored this country's relationship to war. Yeah, well, I guess looking at the, the confluence of those two stories as you've constructed it, uh, in the notes at the front of the play script, you and Leticia both say that you hope that war crimes would stir up some big questions about our national history, our identity, our future. What were they? Well, when I began writing this play, this was towards the end of the Howard era. And, you know, this was an era that was marred by the history wars where John Howard was lending support to historians like Keith Winshuttle, who were attempting to deny various aspects of our history, um, such as, you know, Aboriginal massacres. At the same time, uh, the Howard government were very much about promoting within our education system, the Gallipoli story, and encouraging that to bolster support for Australian troops in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, some people may say that those two things aren't connected, but I think they were connected, absolutely. And I think the media at the same time was perpetuating a, a, this highly xenophobic view of this country. And of course, all of this, all of these um, events had a trickle-down effect which really exploded most uh, dramatically in the Cronulla riots in 2005. So I guess all of those events were the context out of which this play was, was written. And you've said that it also raises the question, war crimes that is, of what's sacred to us as a nation. What do you think is sacred to us as a nation? I think our memorials are sacred. I think for many country towns, war memorials were very much the, the grave site uh, for the thousands of young men and women who were killed in war and often their bodies were never returned to Australia. And so they're incredibly potent, sacred sites for people, even today, even though there's been a long, there's been a lot of water under the bridge. They're incredibly important to, to our history as a country. But I also think that we have other sacred sites in this country. Aboriginal land, for example, is uh, incredibly sacred and, and needs to be respected and acknowledged. And I don't think we always do that. And I think as Australians, I think what should be sacred is the landscape on which we, we all live and breathe uh, and tell stories. And I think uh, we should always acknowledge uh, that this was, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. 
Uh, so I think that's sacred. Mm. Do you think we still need to be asking all of these same questions today? I absolutely think we need to be asking these same questions today. And it's been it's been nearly seven years since I started writing this play, and it's it's awful how the themes are recurring constantly. And so you know we've changed political leaders, but we're still facing the same degree of xenophobia, the same uh, treatment of asylum seekers. It seems like we're not moving forward on this issue. And so I feel like this play is speaking to now just as much as it was to then. I wanted to read a um, a quote from Letitia's 2012 thesis. It's called Reimagining Political Theatre for the 21st Century. She's looking at the technique of transformation, which is actually a signature of your work. And uh, war crimes, specifically, an ensemble of five female performers, they play all the roles. They play the gang of girls, obviously, central to the main narrative. And then they play uh, the kings, a boy gang, who are actually kind of like their male counterparts. They play a pack of soldiers, a series of school teachers, community members, and mothers too. But the choice to have these women play all the roles in the play wasn't about the production budget, really, was it? So tell me, what were you aiming for by using this kind of transformation as a theatrical device? I think transformation is an incredible political tool because it exposes the mechanics of theatre. It exposes the actor in the space. Uh, and I've always been very attracted um, to working with, with actors who are really excellent at doing that. I hate doubling that occurs off stage so you see an actor go off and then they put on a new wig or hat or pair of glasses and they come back I like to see that transformation exposed there's a a pleasure in that and there's a comment in that which is really political Uh, war crimes essentially is a story of disenfranchised women young women a group of women who have very little power in their world and through the storytelling they have power they are are given power to control the story. So when they enrol as other characters, they they make comment upon those characters in performance. So for example, when the girls play the kings, who are a group of lads in the town, they make a mockery of these young men, which I think is really powerful and strong. So they turn the sexual harassment that they receive on its head and they become in control of that story. Uh, so that was really important to me, that they're in control of the storytelling and of the characterizations. Do you think it would have dissipated this effect um, if you had someone, an individual actor, playing each of the different roles within the play? I really think it would, yes. I have never really imagined it, the play performed by a, a larger cast, because transformation is the essence of this play's conception. It was always going to be told by these group of young women. And it would just remove that whole layer of political comment that you were just talking about as well, I suppose. Absolutely, yeah. I wanted to read another quote from Letitia's thesis. She says, There's nothing charming or genteel about the young women depicted in war crimes. The behavioural stereotypes of woman in patriarchal terms is rejected. But there's still plenty of pressure on them, I think. You know, I mean, obviously, uh, they put a lot of pressure on each other, but they also face bigotry, sexism, and Jade's strong constitution can't overpower the physical strength of her rapists. So um, I'm wondering what you wanted audience to see in these female characters that you don't think is represented enough. Mm. I'm really fascinated with this particular age group. And I think just going back a little bit, I when we were touring hoods into schools, 
I realised that Hoods was such an urban story and uh, we were often touring to schools in regional areas, in remote areas. And at the time I thought, I really want to write a play that uh, that communicates to, to kids that grow up in these other places, in these remote places. And so I was looking for a story that I could share with them. And I think, you know, my encounters with these young people always led me to the to the belief that young women, I think, were particularly found life particularly difficult uh, in those environments. But I think it's a it's a really potent time of life for young women where they're finding their sexuality, they're finding out what it means to be a young woman, um, whether they're heterosexual or gay or trans or whatever. You know, and there's this uh, a quote that I love by a French philosopher called Diderot who said, you all die at 15, and he was talking to a young woman. And there is a kind of loss of self that happens, I think, uh, for young women at around about that age where they lose something. And I think it's possibly it's a tomboyishness or a a groundedness and they they realize that there's a you know there's another world out there and you know Simone de Beauvoir believed that adolescence is when girls realize that men have the power and that their only power comes from consenting to become submissive adored subjects I don't necessarily agree with that because I think women young women have many ways of asserting their power and their strength and they find those ways they're incredibly resourceful but at the same time there's a lot of pressures um, upon them as well and I just, I really wanted to tell this story because about young women because I don't think we hear it um, ever. Uh, and, and if we do hear it, we hear it in a particular way that I don't think is necessarily truthful. And there's actually a real complexity within all of that about the way that you've actually represented these women. It's not... Um, promoting them necessarily and some of the judgment calls that they make for themselves or about each other are really uh troubling is the wrong word but complicated i mean you you look at what happened to jade she's she's raped she doesn't tell anyone and on some level obviously you can understand that it's it's an incredibly shocking thing for anyone to have to suffer through and it's the sort of thing that until you know how you feel about it or can even deal with the fact that it's happened. It can be very difficult to talk to someone about it, not knowing what their reaction will be. What I found really interesting, though, was that all of her friends were more than happy for her to sleep around, and she has a reputation for doing that, but she knew that if she told them that she'd been raped, that they would Mm. would judge her. Mm. How how does that... That's confusing. How does that work? It's incredibly complex, I think. It's incredibly complex, and it doesn't make a lot of sense. And I think that the internalised hatred or um, sexism, internalised sexism, I suppose, that's at play within these these girls' lives, that they're kind of their own worst enemies in many ways and that, that their friendships are incredibly strong but they're incredibly vicious as well. You know, I think one of the texts that I was reflecting on uh, a lot while I, writing War Crimes was, was Blackrock, which is, you know, a signature Australian play, a seminal text that that really explores teenage culture and violence um, and centres around the rape and murder of a young woman. And I love that play. I've grown up with that play. But I wanted to write something that flipped that narrative slightly and actually told that story from the girl's perspective. Because I think that, yes, there are female characters in Black Rock, but it's very much a boy's story. And I wanted to see and view sexual assault from the perspective of girls and how girls actually deal with that in their community. Mm, And I thought possibly when 
Jade was sleeping around, her friends could rationalize that she had the power in that situation. But somehow, right. once she'd been raped, they would also say she deserved it. That's right. You know, it, yes. it's, it's such a complicated thing there. It's tough. I really want to read another quote from Letitia's essay. She wrote that through the process of watching and retelling, the girls in war crimes challenge and contradict each other, kind of like what we've just been talking about, really. It's very complicated. They provide not only conflicting points of view, but they also embody the real instability of, please note inverted commas, truth. Was that something that you really wanted to look at as well through the play? Because it it's applicable to lots of different characters, not just Jade. That's right. I think in the play as you're reading or watching it, you don't really have a sense of who's telling the truth or whose story it really is. I think potentially it's, you know, Jade, it's possibly Jade's story. And I'm hoping that we follow Jade's journey a little bit more than we follow other characters' journey because I think her journey is is a journey from darkness to enlightenment. She has a sense of internal justice in her that allows her despite the attitudes of her friends and despite her world and her social economic context, she sees injustice and she recognises it and she sees the illogic of it and she decides to rail against it and to react. And I think that's the character that I hope, I hope that audiences follow her truth and believe that that's the truth. But equally, it's possible that audiences will respond to Lara's experience and, and that's a fair enough uh, reaction. Or Ishtar, for that matter. Or, or Ishtar, for yeah, that matter. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Look, speaking again of truth and understanding, I guess something struck me is that these young women, they don't really have much of a grasp on anything beyond the borders of Kamaragunja. A couple of them don't even know what the meaning of the word Kamaragunja is, and they were born there. Um, add to that, they know it's an Aboriginal word, they make fun of it, and ironically, Kamaragunja actually means home. So they don't really have an understanding in a way, of their own home. But they also don't know, for example, uh, where or how Damien Greer was killed. Greer was a resident of Kamaragunja. He was killed in the war in Afghanistan. And yet they're still happy to gleefully suggest that Ishtar's relatives might have been involved, except Ishtar's family is from Iraq. Now, it's safe to say there's a significant amount of ignorance and prejudice at play here and beneath a lot of the events that actually unfold in war crimes. But I don't really want to look at this as a divide between big cities and, and regional areas. There's plenty of ignorance and prejudice in cities too. Yeah. I'm still curious to know what you think some of the specifics are about a small town that allow for such prejudice and bigotry to develop. Well, I know the experience firsthand because I grew up in a small country town, actually a few small country towns. and. So I, I think I know intimately the, the, the particular claustrophobia of those environments and how small the world is when you're young and you haven't had the opportunity to travel beyond the borders of your town, particularly if it's a fairly monocultural world. You know, when I first went to a, a city when I was a teenager, I realised that, oh, gosh, we do live in a multicultural society. This is amazing. But I think if, you're, if your experience has been um, limited to a regional area, much of the information that you're, that you're, you're getting about the world around you is, is secondhand information. So it's, you know, it's, it's via talkback radio and it's uh, via the media, which 
mainstream media I certainly don't trust. And it's also through history books and through education. And so if that's slightly biased, then it's going to be a very warped perspective. But I think what's unique about Cummeragunja as a town, it was actually not unique in Australia, but representative of many country towns in Australia now, is the influx of immigrant labour uh, to these communities. And it could be viewed as a really exciting, refreshing stage in our history as a nation. Unfortunately, I think sometimes in some contexts, in some circumstances, it can lead to conflict and tension and, um, and distrust. And I think in Kamaragunja, that's what's happened. And it's, it, it all kind of feeds back to uh, economic hardship and the particular economic climate in that town. So it's really important to me that we don't think of characters and these characters as ignorant, or, but that they potentially haven't been exposed to a more global notion of the world. Speaking of local and global, this is possibly going to be a long bow, but I just want to ask you anyway, because you do draw correlations between the local and the global, between violence against women and a culture of masculinity and mateship. Do you see any correlations between the war in Afghanistan and violence against women? Absolutely. I don't, I don't think that's a long bow to draw at all. I think that's a very deliberate thesis of this play. I'm really glad that that's um, sort of evident in the text. I think I was very much inspired by a play uh, that the UK playwright Sarah Kane wrote called Blasted, and she draws a correlation between a rape in a Leeds hotel room with the atrocities of war in Bosnia. And there is a relationship between those things. There's a culture of violence that grows and perpetuates. And the point of the play was to draw those things together and to say they are connected. There is a relationship. Uh, and we need to address the local if we're going to address the global. And I guess the play then comes back to that slogan that one of the girls in Bathurst graffitied on the, uh, the war memorial war is rape was written and perhaps that action was misguided but war is rape and rape is war if there was one thing that audiences or readers could take away from war crimes after they've experienced it what would you like that to be i would like audiences to take away the notion of kamaragunja which is uh, home and the idea that australia should be home and can be home to many different people. Thank you so much for coming in to talk to me about your play, Angela. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Not In Print. I hope you've enjoyed hearing more about this great Australian play. And if you have any comments or questions about this episode or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. Just search for Currency Press on Facebook or Twitter and drop us a line. This episode was produced by Currency Press with the generous assistance of the Department of Performance Studies and the School of Letters, Art and Media at Sydney University.